people who don't deserve it. Because there is nothing good in us this morning. Oh, we, we have good deeds, and, and, and we know we have good deeds. We, we help those who are in need. We are kind to, to others. We, we've even given of our, of our monies this morning to express our goodness. But yet, nothing that we do good is not in some way tainted by still our sin. So there is nothing that we could do, no project that we could create that could save our souls from our damnation. We needed help. And more than help, we needed someone to come and breathe new life into us because we were so hopeless and helpless, we were dead. And you didn't set in heaven becking us to try with all of our efforts to climb the stairway to heaven. But you descended the stairway and you entered into our mess and became our Messiah so that sinners could be saved and rebels could become righteous. You did for us what we could not do for ourselves. So this morning, my prayer is, Father, that if there is one or more amongst us that still remains your foe, that they would hear that you have fought for them and they would surrender their fight this morning to King Jesus. And then, Father, for those of us that have already bent the knee to you, I pray that we would be renewed and refreshed and deepened as we see in a greater degree what you have done for us so that what we might be called the children of God. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, because you guys were singing so well. I mean, this this little area right here, I mean, just absolutely. I just turned my mic off several times. I'm like, man, I, I enjoy hearing that more than I do anything. Um, you know, I contemplated there for a minute that we would just quit after the song and just go home. There are certain things I don't contemplate too long. And after seeing y'all give your hard-earned money this morning, I thought, well, they paid their ticket price, so we might as well go ahead and make sure they get what they paid for. And if you say, well, I didn't pay for nothing this morning, then don't expect a whole lot, and you, you, you know. Or if you get anything, that'll just be a bonus, right? Luke chapter 15, all, all, all kidding aside, Luke chapter 15. If you have been in church very little in your life, you're going to be familiar with this story. So get your, if, you, if you don't have a Bible, if you've got a phone with your Bible on it or a tablet, device, Bible, it doesn't matter. If you don't have either one of those, slide close to someone who has a Bible or has a device. And I want you to put your eyes on the text this morning because our tendency will be, ah, it's the parable of the prodigal son. I've, I've heard this before. There's 
No need to hear this again or look at this again. And I would say to us this morning is, if we think we know this story, that's our problem. Our text this morning is often called the gospel within the gospel. The gospels are filled with radical stories, but I'm going to say this to you this morning. I do not believe there is a more radical story told in the gospels than this particular story. Jesus means for, the, for his parable to correct the human misconception of how one connects to God. Jesus is, I mean, we, we, I mean, even I'm still trying to fully process the magnitude and the weight of what Jesus is saying in this parable. Because it, I mean, it is, it's just not a paradigm shift. This is an absolutely, uh, this is a, this is a, a shift of massive proportions. I mean, Jesus is literally about to turn everything that was known up until this point about how a person connects to God on its head. His parable finds the entire human race guilty of knowing how to connect to God. Guilty of knowing how to do it. As Americans, we have additional connectivity problems. We possess a Western mindset while our text was written about those who lived in the East. So here's the issue. The people who understood all of what was going on, they, uh, they, had mis- they, they had misunderstood how to connect to God. Now Jesus tells a parable to them to help them to understand how one really connects to God. And he tells it in Eastern language, and it's now being read by Western people you think we might have a little bit of a connectivity problem ourselves? And I would say that we do. Though some, though some preachers and uh, uh, theologians have totally missed what this parable means, most all commentaries that you would read and most sermons that you would hear get it partially right. But here's the issue. We never really enter into the fullness of this parable. And it's simply because there are certain cultural aspects that are at play that we simply do not know anything about. Now, Wednesday night, we, we introduced a video, we got three more to go with it, of a gentleman, now listen, who has spent 55 years studying nothing but Luke chapter 15. He's written two books on Luke chapter 15, covering about 900 pages. He is the world's foremost theologian on Luke chapter 15. That's how rich and dense this particular passage of Scripture is. So we won't get into all the density of it this morning. We will simply scratch the surface. But if you want to see a little deeper about what's really going on here, because not only is Jesus telling the gospel within a gospel, but Jesus is actually using this parable to retell the whole story of the Bible. In particular, the whole story of the nation of Israel. We don't have time to get into that this morning. So I bid you uh, an invitation to Wednesday night at 630 
So let's look at the parable to begin with. So let's read it. You there? Luke chapter 15. We're going to read the entirety of it because it's not three parables. It's one parable. Okay? So let's get started. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Can I stop right there? <laughs> they're about to get the, I mean, they're about to get their theological heads knocked off their shoulders. Because if they think that Jesus just simply eats and uh, hangs out with sinners, Jesus is about to say to them, look, it's much worse than what you think it is. I just don't eat and hang out with them. I run down the road and I kiss them and I bring them in and I feed them. It's much worse than you think it is. Y'all think I'm reckless by hanging out with these sinners, I'm about to show you how reckless my love really is. So he told them, watch, here's the key word, underline this, mark it in your Bible, highlight it, this parable. So it's a parable, even though it has three distinct stories within it, okay? It is a parable, one singular unit. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost? Keyword, lost. This parable is not the same parable told in Matthew's gospel. Matthew tells a, God, tells a story about a sheep that has wandered from, and the shepherd leaves the ninety and nine to go find the one wandering. Two different parables. That's a parable of a sheep that has wandered, talking about Christians that have a tendency to what? Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. This is a sheep that is what? Lost. Two different words there, okay? So let's don't confuse the two stories. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That's a little bit of a backhanded comment at the old Pharisees who are listening to the parable. Let's continue. Or what woman having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me. Don't you love it? They're, they're accusing Jesus of going to too many parties and all he's going to talk about is more parties. <laughs> I love it. Y'all don't like parties? That's what I'm all about. That's the kind of Jesus I like, right? Isn't that the kind of Jesus you, that, that you want? A Jesus that throws parties? Amen. How, about, how about, yeah, there we go. Y'all warming up a little bit. A little, little sidebar here. Uh, a guy who I don't necessarily uh, uh, agree with all of his theological positions, a guy named Tony Campolo. But yet, uh, there, there are some things about Tony Campolo that, that I, I really love and I admire and I appreciate. But none more so, I'll condense this story real quick, because you just got to hear this story. It so fits with this in, in some ways. Uh, Tony tells about speaking in, in Hawaii. That was a tough gig to have to get, right? I got to go to Hawaii and speak. He's from the East Coast, so the time difference is a little different. And he says, you know, he's, he's laying there in the bed, and it's like 
2 a.m. Hawaii time, and it's like 7 a.m. back on the East Coast. And his body, his, his, you know, his uh, clock has not reset uh, biologically, so he's up, he's wide awake. He says, well, I'm up, I might as well make, I might as well do something. So he gets up, he says, surely there's, he calls them a greasy spoon that's open this late at night where I could get some coffee and maybe something to snack on to pass the time. So he says he's walking down the road and he looks down a little alleyway and there was one of these greasy spoons, as he calls it. He walks in, he goes up to the counter, he sits down at the counter, he says, and the guy comes out, uh, kind of, he says kind of a, a, a dirty fella, not, not hygienic, hygiene's not very high up on his list. And he comes out and he says, what can I help you with? And he says, I'd just like to get a cup of coffee. So he gives him a cup of coffee. And a few minutes later, um, a handful of women of the night make their way into the greasy spoon. And they kind of fill up the small little place. And they're sitting all around uh, Dr. Campolo. And he's feeling a little uncomfortable uh, about being in this place with these particular types of women. And as he was sitting there sipping his coffee, he overheard one lady, and her name was Agnes, and Agnes was telling one of her uh, uh, fellow co-workers that tomorrow would, was going to be her birthday. And she, her co-worker said, and? She said, well, she goes, I just thought I would tell somebody that tomorrow's my birthday. You know, I'm, I, don't, uh, I think she was 20-something years old, and she goes, and I've never had a birthday party. I've never had a birthday cake. I've... I've never celebrated my birthday. After a few minutes, the ladies finished their break and went back to work. Campolo was sitting there thinking, hmm. So he looks at the guy that's behind the counter and he says, hey, 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 come here for a second. He said, the, the, the ladies that just came in, he said, is, is this a ritual for them? Do they come in every night or... Uh, or have you never seen them before? Oh, no, no, no. They, they come in here every night, just like clockwork, same time to drink their coffee. He said, the lady to my right, Agnes. Yeah, 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 Agnes, Agnes. I, I overheard Agnes saying that tomorrow was her birthday and that Agnes had never had a birthday party. He said, um, I got an idea. What if I came back tomorrow night a little early and decorated the diner and we throw a birthday party for Agnes? He said, that sounds like a great idea. And Tony said, look, I'll get the streamers. I'll get the cake. Oh, no, 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 no. I'll do the cake. I'll do the cake. You just bring everything else. So the next night, about an hour early, Dr. Campolo walks in. They start hanging the streamers. They get the place all decorated. <clears throat> the cake is there. The candles are on the cake. And just like clockwork, here comes Agnes and her co-workers into the diner, to which people jumped out, happy birthday, Agnes. And out comes the cake with the candles lit. And Agnes is, she's just stunned. They set the cake down in front of her. She's looking at the cake, not saying anything, not doing anything, to which the guy behind the counter says, blow out the candles, Agnes, blow out the candles. Agnes looked up and she said, would it be okay if I didn't blow out the candles and I just took the cake one block down to where my mom lives and show her my cake? To which they agreed. 
Agnes leaves. As you can imagine, it was quiet. Dr. Campolo says in that moment, when the Lord just gives you the right thing to say at the right time, he said, I just blurted out, would it be okay if we prayed? And he said, there in the diner with her friends and other individuals, he prayed for Agnes. When he finished his prayer, the man who ran the diner, looked at him and he said, hey, hey, Campolo, you didn't tell me you were a preacher. He said, what kind of church do you preach at? He said, I preach at a church that throws birthday parties for ladies of the night at two o'clock in the morning. Oh, no, you don't. No, you don't. Because if there was a church like that, I would join it. There really is a church like that. There really is. It may not exist. It may not be functioning. But there's the potential for that kind of church to exist. The kind of church that just blows all cultural norms out of the water and redefines what Christianity really should look like. That's not the sermon this morning. Or what woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and seek diligently, diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property and reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed pigs. And he was longing to feed to be fed with the paws that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough to eat? But I perish here with hunger. I will, rate, I will rise up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose, and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older brother was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. picture of heaven, by the way. And he called one of his servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. And his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours 
Cain, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your younger brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Well, very quickly, who are the participants in this parable? Well, it's found back in, uh, in verses 1 and 2. We see that tax collectors and sinners have drawn near along with the Pharisees and the scribes. So those are our participants in the parable. Those are our, that's our audience. Those are our listeners. Those are the people that Jesus is speaking to in this moment. Now, let's look at the parts of the parable. So we, we see the parable. We see the participants of the parable. Now, let's see the parts of the parable. There are four parts of the parable. Part one is a lost sheep, and its parallel is to part three, the younger son. And you say, okay, how, how are they parallel to each other? The sheep was what? Lost in the far country. It had went away. It was lost. The younger son was lost where? In the far country. He had left and gone away. The second part of this parable is the story of the lost coin. And where was the coin lost? Was it lost in the market? No, it was lost in the home. And it parallels to the fourth segment of this parable, which is the lost son, the elder son. You see, the coin was lost at home, and the elder son was lost where? At home. The story is in two acts. The title of Act 1 is The Lost Younger Brother. The title of Act 2 is The Lost Elder Brother. Act 1 begins with a speech. The younger brother comes to his father and says, Father, give me a share of the estate. And when the original hearers heard this, they would have been absolutely astounded at what they heard. If you had two sons, then when you died, the estate would be divided between the two sons. But in this culture, remember... The, older, the elder son always got a double portion of the estate. So if you had two sons, that meant the older son got two-thirds, the younger son got a third. So if there were only two, then two-thirds and a third. But it wasn't supposed to happen until the father died. When the son came and asked for his share of the estate now, the original hearers would have been, would have been astounded. Why? Because here's what the younger son is saying. Father, I wished you dead already. Or, Father, you are dead to me right now. The younger son is saying this. He says, I want your stuff, but I don't want you. I want the father's things, but I don't want the father. My relationship with you has just been a means to an end. Such behavior was unheard of and demanded swift punishment. The father should have struck his son, watch, with the back of his hand over and over and over and over again until the son was driven off the property. That was the response that the father should have had. He was within his legal rights to do that. But notice what happens. Look, look in verse 12 of chapter 15. And the younger of them said, Father, give me the share of this property that is coming to me. I wished you to be dead. And he divided his property between them. This is the, this is the astounding part of the story. This is the amazing. This is where Jesus begins to turn 
religion on its head. This is the way Jesus is turning on its head how people understood how you connected with God and who God was. The the translation uses the word property, but if you want to write in your Bible this word, B-I-O-S, bios, that is the actual Greek word for property here. Now, there, there is another Greek word for property that would talk about actual physical land, but the word here that's translated property is the word bios, where we get our word biology. It really says the father divided his life between them. Why would he say that? We do not understand the relationship people in the past had to their land. This father's estate was his land. His wealth was his land. He would have to sell one third of his land to give his son that part of the estate. Their very identity is bound up in their land. To lose your land was to lose yourself. And to lose part of the land was to lose part of your standing in the community, which was tied to how much land you had. The son is asking his father to tear his life apart, to tear his standing in the community apart, to tear himself apart. And here's what's astounding. The father does it. The hearers had, had never seen a Middle Eastern patriarch, patriarch respond to such an insult like this. What does the father what this father is doing is enduring the worst kind of, the worst thing a human being can endure. Rejected love. How do we often respond in such situations? We get mad. We retaliate. We reject. We do everything we possibly can to diminish our affection for the person so we don't hurt that much. However, this father maintains his love for his son and endures the agony of rejected love. One commentator or the guy that we're listening to on Wednesday night said this, the father reprocesses his anger into grace. So the son goes off and he squanders everything he has. When he is literally down in the mud, down in the pigsty, and he realizes how stupid he's been, he comes up with a plan. Look at verses 17 through 19. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise, go to my father, and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me, watch this, as one of your hired servants. The rabbis taught if you had violated the community uh, values, the only way back in the community was not just an apology, but listen, You had to make restitution. You had to pay back what you had taken. There is, these words of his are not words of repentance, as some have said. Oh, look, he's he's rehearsing his repentance. No, he's not. He's rehearsing his plan of restitution. You know what's interesting here? I'm going to give you two ways I can prove to you that this is not uh, uh, a recitation for repentance, but of um, restitution. Number one is when he says, um, I have sinned against heaven and against you. Do you know that's a direct quotation from Pharaoh in Exodus 10, 19? 
Do you remember after the eighth plague, Moses comes to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, look, I've sinned against heaven and against you. Why? Because he's wanting the plagues to stop. It's not real repentance. He's just needing to get out from underneath the plagues. And then he, then he reneges on his repentance. And God sends the ninth and the tenth plague. This is not true repentance. This is a plan of restitution. But the other part that shows us that this is not a plan of repentance, but restitution, is when he says, I will arise and go to my father. The word that should have been used to to really mark true repentance, and it is a word that's always used to mark true repentance in the Bible, is I will return. Return is the word for repentance. He is not wanting to repent. He just simply wants to get out of his situation and get into a better situation. He knows he can never be a son again, but he knows that if he can pay back what he has taken, his life can be better than what it is. And right now, all he cares about is getting life better than what it is. Because how much worse could it be than lusting after? And that's really, when you read the King James, it says he feigned after what the pigs ate. It literally means that he had lust in his heart for what the pigs ate. Now, I'm going to tell you something. I don't know. Anybody in here, some of y'all older folks, y'all slot pigs probably before. Any of y'all slot pigs? I, I actually saw that happen and when I was younger. Still remember the smell and the look of it. Anybody that's got a craving for slop has got a problem. They got a problem. This young man has a problem. And he knows that if he can make restitution, he can make life better. But what he doesn't realize is the only thing that's going to make life better is not restitution, but repentance. Then in chapter 15, verse 20, he says, And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. You see, the father sees him afar off and he runs. Can I tell you something? Middle Eastern men don't run. Number one is their attire does not, is not uh, conducive for running. They would literally have to pull up what y'all would call, or we would call what looks to be a dress. It's a, it's a long robe. They'd have to pull their robe up and expose their legs Middle Eastern men didn't expose their legs, no matter how pretty they were or tan they were or anything like that. They just didn't expose their legs. They kept them covered up. They're very much a covered up kind of people. And so for him to pull his robe up, expose his legs, and then run, again, the people that are listening to what Jesus is saying, they they are just being turned upside down because they're like, what kind of father is this? And that's what Jesus means to do. He wants them to look at God and say, God is so radically different than what I thought he was like. He runs to his son. He shows absolute emotional abandonment and kisses him. The son tries to roll out his restitution program, right? He's like, Father, what does he say? Father, I am no longer... uh, Well, let's see. Look at verse, I think it's in verse 21. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. The father says, what? Get the robe. 
The best robe would have been the father's robe. What is he saying? I'm not going to wait for you to clean up. I'm not going to I'm not going to wait for you to take a bath. I'm certainly not going to wait for you to prove yourself. He says to his servants, cover my son's nakedness and rags with the robe of my office and honor, and we're going to feast. You're not going to earn your way back into the family. I'm bringing you back. When the elder brother hears it, what happens? Yes, my brother's home. Finally, he has returned. Oh, I love him so much. He's my dear brother. I have missed him so much. I've heard stories that he's been out living in in terrible ways. And I have prayed for his return. And I have longed and desired for him to give up his sinful ways and come home. (laughs) No, that ain't quite the way it goes down, is it? Is that how you would have responded? (laughs) But listen, look at what he says in verse 30. (laughs) But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. The elder brother comes to the father and says, you gave him a calf and you never even gave me a goat. And you gave him a calf. What's this all about? Meat was a delicacy and was rarely eaten during time except for parties or celebrations. There was nothing more expensive that you can do than slay your fattened calf. It was, it was the sort of things most families wouldn't do uh, because it was so expensive. So it was always saved for a momentous occasion. Therefore, the older brother is saying, how dare you use your wealth like this? I have, watch this now. Watch. I have obeyed you. So I have some say in this. In other words, I have some right over your things. How dare you do this? He insults the father. Look at verse 29. Because he doesn't say father, he says, but he answered his father. Look how he answers him. Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command, and yet you never gave me a young goat. You see, this is a deliberate insult. He publicly humiliates his father by not going to the greatest feast his father has ever thrown. And he publicly humiliates him by refusing to call him father. How does the father respond? Do you know how he could have responded? <laughs> Back of the hand, brother. He says, but he says what? My son. Actually, it could be translated my child. I still want you in the feast. Almost every other father I know would have disowned you already for what you, have, for what you have just done, but I still want you in. Again, he is turning this upside down. So what's the purpose? Why does Jesus tell this? Well, I've already told you that Jesus is trying to paint for Jews and for us an accurate picture of what God is like, of what sin is like, and what salvation is like. Why? Because Jesus knows that there are three areas of spiritual life that we have totally missed it on, by and large. And if we haven't totally missed it, then we have not yet understood the fullness of it. God, sin, and salvation. What is, what, what is, who is God in the story? 
He's the Father, right? He's the Father. Why is this important? Because most people don't have an accurate picture of God as Father. Number one is because the Old Testament did not use the term Father to talk about God. The term Father, as it relates to God, is really introduced to us by Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus always refers to God as Father, except on one occasion, and that's when he's on the cross, and he's forsaken by God, and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Outside of that, Jesus always refers to the Father as Father. Why? Because Jesus knows that as human beings, often our concept of God as a Father is often messed up by our earthly fathers, right? And so what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, your earthly father may have acted in this way. Your earthly father may have the right to act in this way. But here's what I'm telling you. When I talk about God as father, I am talking about God and God as father in a way that is nothing like what you understand fatherhood to be. That Though your father may have the right to give you the, the, the back of the hand and drive you out of the house, my father is full of grace and love and compassion. Yes, he will judge sinners for their sin. Yes, he will not let the guilty go free. But before he punishes the guilty for their sin, he will do everything he can to bring the guilty to himself. So that's the picture of God. Next, he's got to clear up the picture of of sin. The picture of sin. Now, the first part of it's pretty self-explanatory, right? We see sin as it relates to the younger brother. Out, living it up, living wild, living crazy, doing whatever he wants to. We don't have any problems understanding that as sin, right? But there's another type of sin that's going on here that's about to mess, it's going to mess a lot of people in this room up. At the end of the second act, we're left with two sons. One is very good, one is very bad. And they, both are, and they are both alienated from the father's heart. Each of them wanted the father's things, but not the father. Each of them used the father to get what they really loved. They didn't love the father. They used the father to get things they really loved. One of them did it by being very, very good, and one of them did it by being very, very bad. They are both lost. The bad one, the younger son, is lost in his badness, but the good one is lost in his goodness. In the end, it is the bad son that is saved, and as far as we know, the good son remained lost. And that goes against everything that anyone had ever believed. You see, the elder brother was lost in spite of his goodness, was not lost in spite of his goodness. He was lost because of his goodness. Do you see what he said? I've never disobeyed your command. He's proud of his goodness. It's not his sins keeping him from the Father. It's his righteousness. The reason we read the first two verses is because it tells us who the two groups of people were. Tax collector sinners, Pharisees, and scribes. All of a sudden, you begin to realize who these two guys are in the parable. Sinners are younger sons, Pharisees, religious teachers. uh, Moral and religious people are the elder brother. What we have in front of us are two basic human beings trying to make the world right, to put themselves right, and to connect with God. But Jesus says you're both wrong. You're both lost. You're both making the world a worse place. You're doing it by your badness, and you're doing it by your goodness. 
The elder brother of the world divide the world into two. They say the good people are in and the bad people are out. The younger brothers do as well. They say that, um, that the open-minded and progressive-minded people are in and the bigoted and judgmental people are out. Jesus says neither. He says it's the humble who are in and the proud who are out. It's the people who know they're not good or open-minded and they need sheer grace who are in and the people who ever think they're on the right side of those divides are out. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not religion or irreligion. It's not morality or immorality. It's off the scales. It's not halfway in the middle. It's altogether something else. It all comes down, listen, to motivation. If you love the Father, you're going to obey Him. But why? The elder brother doesn't obey out of love. The elder brother obeys to get stuff. How can motivation be completely changed around so the reason we obey is out of love and gratitude? You might want to write the last couple of statements down before we go home. Jesus not only gives us a complete picture of who God is, he not only gives us a complete picture of what sin is, but most of all, he gives us a complete picture of salvation. Church, I've been saying this for years, so I just want to say it one more time this morning because, again, it, it comes right out of the text about our motivation for why we do what we do. Some of us are still in, in our own, we are still working out our self-salvation project and we're not, and we're, and we're going we're gonna to die lost. Or some of you know people that are down, going down that road. But there's others of us that have been truly, genuinely converted by grace. But yet there is enough of the elder brother in us that we are in desperate need of help this morning to quit loving and serving God for what we can get from him. The complete picture of salvation is this. We need the initiating love of the Father. We need the initiating love of the Father. We had this discussion sometime back on a Wednesday night. Look, so the, in, the, in the story of the lost sheep, right? The shepherd goes, finds the sheep. In the story of the lost coin, what? The woman searches for the coin. But in this story, it appears, right? It appears that the son comes home seeking the father. But that's not true. Remember what I told you earlier? The son does not come home seeking repentance. He comes home seeking restitution. But do you remember what happens? So the father takes off running. He meets him way on the outside of the city. Why? Because if that boy would have made it to the city, if he would have made it to, to where the neighbors were, they'd have beat the fool out of him. Because that's what they should have done. Because that's what the father should have done. So he meets him on the outskirts. He embraces him. He kisses him. He says, kill the fatted calf. Bring the robe. Bring the ring. This is my son that was dead, but now is alive. Listen, the son, what did he say? Father, I've sinned against you and against heaven, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But did you notice that he did not finish what he originally intended to say, that last part, make me as one of your hired servants. Why? 
Because the father, when he kissed him, when the father sought him for repentance, the son went from a restitution mentality to a repentance mentality. He didn't have any desire to repent until the father came to him and showed him that he needed to repent. That's why he left off, make me like one of your hired servants, because he gave up restitution. Why? Because he knew the only thing to do is to repent. And so he repented. The initiating love of the father. But the father goes out to the older son, right? He goes out to the older son. He says, son, come on in. This is your brother. I think Luke 15 was put in the Bible for the southeastern United States of America. The most churched area in the entirety of the world. Why? Because we are, we are churches filled with elder brothers. Filled with elder brothers. Why? Who are doing good. Who, 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 who make a, a big to-do about all the righteous deeds that we have done. Uh, no, nobody gets more mad at God than people that live in the South. Why? Because, well, God, I've done this and I've done that. And I, then I got cancer and, 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 and my kid died and, 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 and I lost my money in, in the 401k. And on and on and on and on it goes. And we blame God and we blame God and we blame God. The only way that we can get to that point where we're blaming God for what happens is if we have stacked up over here on this side all the good things that I have done so that we can say to God, God, look, look at all the things that I've done for you. This should protect me against all the things over here that have happened to me. This should be my hedge of protection around my life that keeps anything bad from coming into my life. That's elder brother mentality. That is loving God, not for God, but, what, but for what you can get from him. That is not serving God. Because in serving God, I don't care what I get from him as long as I get more of him. That is putting God in your debt. That is, that is putting back cachet so that when you pray... You can have hope that, you know what, God should really answer this prayer because look at, what, look at all I've been stashing away. Look at all the good works I've been doing. Look at the money I've given. Look at the people I've helped. Look at the prayers that I pray. Look at the, the number of Bible verses that I've memorized. Look at the number of, number of Bible studies that I've gone through. I've, I've quit listening to this and I quit watching that and on and on and on and on and on it goes. And what, what have we done? We've turned God into a debtor to us. Now he must come through with whatever I ask. That's elder brother. Some of us are that way through and through, and we don't know Jesus. We are lost in our religion and in our doing good. And some of us are truly saved, but we still, got, we still got elder brotherness lurking around in us, and we better get to putting that to death because that, that, that is not good for our soul. So let me just get to this.
Jesus paints his elder brother in a terrible light, right? I mean, he's, he's, he's a horrible person. And he's telling the Pharisees, this is who you are. This is who you are. So how can I change? That's, that should be the question. If you got elder brotherness in you this morning, or you are an elder brother, you should ask the question, before I walk out the door, what do I need to do to change this morning? And here's what you need to do. You need to see what it cost to bring you into the family. The only way you're going to change is you've got to have your heart melted by what Christ has done for you. Now watch, watch, watch. You see... The difference between Christianity and a Pharisee is motivation. The Pharisee obeys God to get things. The Christian obeys to get God. The Christian has seen the cost and it has melted their heart towards God. The father's acceptance of the younger son was so costly, to the, not to the father, but to the elder brother. Remember who it cost to bring the son back into it, right? Hey, stay, y'all stay with me for a couple of minutes. Watch. Two-thirds to the older, a third to the younger. So it's been divided up. So in order for the younger son to come back into the family, he had to do it at the expense of the older brother. Now, hold on. Watch this. The reason why the older brother is so mad is that when he asked the boy, hey, what's going on? He says, your father has... Uh, um, has brought your younger brother back in and he is safe. I believe it says he's safe and secure. I should have I written that down somewhere. I believe that's how it says it. Says it. But that phrase actually is it's the word shalom, which he means that your father has been reconciled to your younger brother. They have made peace. They are, they are one again. And he is doing it at the expense of, of you, the older brother, because that's the only way you can bring him back in. So in verse 31, he said, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. That's literally true. The father, again, had liquidated it. Everything the father had belonged to the elder brother, every robe, every ring, every fatted calf. The younger brother could only be brought back into the family at the enormous cost and expense to the elder brother. So what does that say? Salvation is not free. It's not simple to be saved. Somebody has to pay. The elder brother has to pay, and he's furious about it. Why does Jesus put such a nasty why does Jesus put in such a nasty elder brother? Because he is showing the Pharisees what they look like. So what would a true elder brother have done? And this is the contrast. This is what Jesus is trying to show us. A true elder brother would have seen the agony of the father and said, "Father, I'm going out to look for my brother." And if he has ruined himself and squandered all of his inheritance, I will bring him home even at my own expense. That would have been a true elder brother. Listen, when you read the book of Hebrews, guess what it says about Jesus? He is our elder brother. What Jesus is showing here is like, look, this is how you act as the elder brother, but watch what I'm about to do. This is how the elder brother should act. 
The younger brother doesn't deserve to have a true elder brother, but we do. Jesus Christ gives us a bad elder brother so that we will long for the right elder brother. We don't need just an elder brother to go out into the next town to find us. We need someone to come from heaven to earth. We don't need an elder brother who brings us into God's family just at the cost of his wallet, but at the cost of his life. On the cross, Jesus was stripped naked so we could be clothed in the robe of honor we don't deserve. On the cross, Jesus called called out, my God, my God, the only time he never called him father because at that moment he was not being treated as a son. So you and I could be treated as a son. There he paid the debt that deep down we all know we owe. He had everything the father had, but he shares it with us and he brings us home at enormous expense to himself. This is the picture that will change our motivation and our approach to God. And then they throw a party. And listen, here's the thing about the party. Listen, the father does not throw the party because, for the son. It's not in honor of the son. It's not. He's like, yeah, it is. He said, come on to the party. Your, your, your brother's home, you know. He was dead and he's now alive. That's the key. That tells you that the party was not for the son, but the party was in honor of the grace that the father showed to the son. Why? The father said, your brother was once dead and now is alive. Listen, guess what? Who brought the son to life? The father did. He's the one that restored him. So the party is to celebrate extravagant grace. And listen, today, you and I, I'm guilty of this. I think we're all guilty of this. When's the last time we really celebrated the Father for what He has done for us? When's the last time we threw a party? Not where we talked about us, and what we were like, and what we and the sins that we sin, and the lifestyle that we live. But when, when's the last time we talked about and celebrated God and who He was and what He has done? Because most testimonies don't bear inside of them. Hey, look at what all. I, it's it's always about look at what I've done, how bad I was, how simple I was, and then Jesus saved me, and that's all about it, and that's about all there is. That's not what. This is all about, it's about celebrating God's grace. So what I want us to do this morning as we end, I told you we were going to save communion to the end, and we are. And so this morning, we're going to sing uh, Amazing Grace. I could think of no better song for us to sing this morning. When you receive your bread and the juice, don't wait on me this morning. I want you to go ahead and take it in your hands and partake of it remembering that when you partake of his body, that that is your elder brother that, that laid his body down. Why? So that, your, so that your sinfulness can be made whole. He was broken so that you can be made whole. And when you drink that cup, signifying his blood, I want you to drink it and remember that everything on the inside of you 
is exactly what the Bible says, and that is you are spotless, you are without sin, not because you have quit sinning and not because you are sinless, but because Christ came as your elder brother and he did not sin so that he could give you his sinlessness so that you could give him your sinfulness. You got it? See how it's going to work? So let's stand and let's sing.